This is Julia Siegel. You're listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. Previously on Thank You for Your Service. I worry about a decision that appears to be highly political in its nature and using the military as props for a divisive social policy. I think it will politicize our military in a way that's bad for civil-military relations. Huntington's view was not, of course, universally accepted. There was a great military sociologist at the University of Chicago named Morris Janowitz, who laid out a view that, in fact, the best way to ensure that the military would remain loyal to democracy was by, in fact, deeply politicizing the military, that is, teaching them the virtues of democracy. They actually ended up politicizing the military. Do they have a right to do it? Yes. Are they civilians? Technically, yes. How do the American people see them? They see them as generals, quite frankly. I've been in countries where the military is completely politicized. We wouldn't want to live in any of those countries. Welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil-military affairs. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. Today we're focusing on one of the most prevalent topics of our podcast and of civil-military affairs at large the politicization of the military. Thomas, what do people in the civil field mean when they use the term politicization of the military? Well, as we've already seen on this podcast, military politicization is a really broad topic that can mean a lot of different things. A few weeks ago, we asked this question on Twitter and got a number of really good and helpful responses from practitioners and scholars in the civil community. You can check out that discussion at our Twitter page at tyfys underscore podcast. Alice Hunt Friend, a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, defines a politicized military as one that, quote, exercises loyalty to a single political party and or consistently advocates for and defends partisan political positions and fortunes. Dr. Paul Staniland, an international relations professor here at the University of Chicago, pointed out to us that in various countries around the world, civilian officials use the military to repress political opponents, silence dissent, and ensure that their respective parties stay in power. Uh, the talks which have been going on between the political parties uh, and the various demonstrating groups here in Bangkok uh, came to an end uh, in what were fairly chaotic scenes as the military tried to exert their uh, control over this compound, blocking various entries and exits. The uh, protest leaders were taken away uh, in minibuses surrounded by soldiers. We, it's not entirely clear. Military uh, leaders can also use their strength to manipulate leaders and influence policy decisions. The most extreme step, of course, being overthrowing the government through a military coup. It wasn't clear quite what. Uh, and then the announcement came uh, on Thai television across all the free-to-air channels here uh, that the army had taken uh, full control of power here. We'd been expecting this perhaps over the last couple of days, but uh, with this process of talks in place, it's perhaps a surprise. Like retired Admiral Mike Mullen said in our interview with him, we're fortunate to live in a country that doesn't have a completely politicized military. But in a U.S. context, we still see military politicization in a few very recognizable forms, and the term can encompass actions from the civilian side and from the military side. So you're saying that both civilian officials and military leaders can be responsible for military politicization? Yeah, pretty much. We could see it as active duty and retired members of the military using their credibility to advance partisan viewpoints. Uh, this might take the form of overtly partisan statements in public settings, or it can be more subtle. 
Dan Marr, an army lawyer and civil military relations researcher, explained to us that military politicization can happen when, quote, military members or institutions adopt, promulgate, and act on a policy preference in order to shape that policy before it is enacted by civilian authority. This doesn't always have to be because the military leaders are Democrats or Republicans. Dr. Jess Blankshane, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College, told us that, quote, it can also be problematic if the military is seen as just another special interest group engaging in political maneuvers for its own benefit. So, for example, if a president asks for a range of options or plans for military action and military leaders hold off on presenting options they don't think benefit the military as an institution, that can politicize the military by making them seem like just another player in Washington. So what do civilians do that politicize the military? The other side of it is when elected officials leverage the military to advance their respective causes. Captain Marr defines this as, quote, civilian officials exploiting the perceived or apparent legitimacy and credibility of military service members, organizations, institutions, or values for the purpose of enhancing the attractiveness of a partisan position or policy implementation. Because of the fine line between the roles of commander-in-chief and political party leader, Almost every U.S. president gets accused of politicizing the military at some time or another. Most recently, President Trump faced this kind of criticism after his Christmas trip to Iraq, when active duty service members were photographed with campaign gear, and he gave a speech that criticized the Democrats and echoed some of his common rally rhetoric. I don't know if you folks are aware of what's happening. We want to have strong borders in the United States. The Democrats don't want to let us have strong borders. Only for one reason. You know why? Because I want it. And that's what you're fighting for. You know, when you think about it, you're fighting for borders in other countries. And they don't want to fight the Democrats for the border of our country. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So let's talk about military members advancing political viewpoints. Of course, it's important that active duty military officials don't advocate a party platform. In the U.S., it's taken for granted that they don't do that. But a question that is still frequently debated is whether it is ever appropriate for military officials to speak up in a public manner on political issues. Jim Golby, who is an active-duty Army strategist working as a policy advisor for the U.S. mission to NATO, recently wrote an article about the Coast Guard Commandant addressing the most recent government shutdown. To provide some context, the U.S. Coast Guard is one of the five military branches but is part of the Department of Homeland Security, not the Department of Defense, and it was one of the agencies that did not receive funding when the government shut down. However, because Coast Guard service members are considered essential government personnel, they were required to work without pay. Many were even forced to turn to food banks and charitable organizations during the shutdown. Admiral Carl Schultz is the Commandant of the Coast Guard the highest-ranking Coast Guard officer who is responsible for all Coast Guard administration and operations. In a video that went viral on Twitter, Admiral Schultz said, We're five-plus weeks into the anxiety and stress of this government lapse and your non-pay. You, as members of the armed forces, should not be expected to shoulder this burden. I remain heartened by assistance available to you within the lifelines and by the outpouring of support from local communities across the nation. But ultimately, I find it unacceptable that Coast Guard men and women have to rely on food pantries and donations to get through day-to-day -day life as service members. 
You don't see a lot of statements like this coming from the people who run the branches of the military. But as Golby argues, just because it's uncommon doesn't mean it's inappropriate or a violation of civil military norms. Admiral Schultz's video wasn't partisan, and it didn't call out any particular elected leaders. Instead, he stayed within his lane of military expertise, addressing how a prolonged shutdown was hurting the Coast Guard's readiness. Golby further outlines how generals and admirals, both active duty and retired, could actually speak up more. By sticking to their lanes of military expertise, they can help close the civil-military divide and help citizens foster a better understanding of their military. Some senior military leaders have done a great job of that in the past, like Admiral Mullen, who devoted much of his time as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to public outreach efforts. Nevertheless, there is a concern that partisan actors might take the words and opinions of military officials and try to portray them as coming from one side of the political aisle. As Golby also writes, it is increasingly difficult to make nonpartisan statements about political topics, or more precisely, to make statements that people perceive as nonpartisan. Military advice is always given in a political context, and the political context in America is deeply polarized along partisan lines. As a military leader, you're essentially forced to pick a side, or someone will pick one for you. Some, like Michael Robinson, who's a professor at West Point, have argued that this has worsened under the current administration. In an op-ed for the Washington Post, Robinson argues that President Trump is damaging the military's credibility in three specific ways by, one, pushing retired and active duty military leaders into taking political positions, either supporting or opposing him, two, using partisan language to discredit ex-military officers who disagreed with him, and three, provoking what he calls the retired military elite to become politically engaged. One of the generals who has spoken against President Trump is the former commander of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, Army General Stanley McChrystal. In December, when asked in an ABC News interview whether he would work for President Trump's administration, General McChrystal said that he would not, specifically calling into question the president's honesty and morality. If you were asked to join the Trump administration, what would you say? I'd say no. I think it's important for me to work for people who I think are basically honest, who tell the truth as best they know it. You think he's a liar? I don't think he tells the truth. Is Trump immoral in your view? I think he is. And the rest is history. So now the president, no surprise, firing back on Twitter, claiming McChrystal got fired like a dog by Obama. Last assignment, a total bust known for big dumb mouth, Hillary lover. These events inspired a piece in The Atlantic by Dr. Tom Nichols, a writer and professor at the U.S. Naval War College, entitled Trump Escalates His Assault on Civil-Military Relations. Nichols wrote that no American president has ever dared risk the American civil-military relationship for less cause and with such childish malice. He further argues that Trump has a history of impugning the character and competence of senior U.S. military leaders purely for political reasons. And he warns that soon we could face the most politicized and divided military since Vietnam or even since the Civil War. Dr. Nichols' piece led to a response from another scholar and historian of civil military relations, Dr. McCubin Owens, published in the National Review. Uh, in that article, Owens cautions against the tendency of many commentators, like Nichols, 
to frame all civil-military tensions in apocalyptic or alarmist terms. He describes civil-military relations as a bargain between three parties, the uniformed military, civilian policymakers, and the American people, and says that periodically, in response to social, political, technological, and geopolitical changes, this bargain must be renegotiated. Often, what seems to be a crisis is more likely a transition, as the civil-military bargain is in the process of being renegotiated. Uh, he writes that although we should be concerned when civil-military tensions arise, we should not be surprised. In many respects, such tensions are woven into the fabric of the American Republic, and we should avoid hyperbole. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. We recently asked Kevin Wang, a lecturer at the University of Chicago's International Relations Department, who was our guest for episode six, for his thoughts on civil-military relations under the Trump administration. Here's a bit of that conversation. Kevin, considering this debate over the modern politicization of the military, do you think Americans have reason to be alarmed? Not yet. I can see why this may be concerning. I should say though that I have not yet seen any truly. I've used this word before, but I cannot see any truly egregious examples of Trump violating the military's operational or bureaucratic autonomy.、Uh, but something that does concern me is the crudeness of the language with which the president is able to sort of leverage against military officers, active duty or retired. And and essentially get away with that type of behavior. I'm afraid of what will happen if that language bleeds into the rhetoric of the average American voter. Right now, if there is sort of any slim comfort, we can arguably say that this is just Donald Trump being Donald Trump, and he leverages ad hominem attacks at anyone he doesn't like. But he's more or less alone in attacking the military. If he's able to do that with a popular mandate. Then I would be truly, truly, very, very concerned. You're kind of saying that if the average American voter starts to speak about the military in the same way that President Trump does, that might erode the civil-military relations we've had in place. Kind of erode maybe the trust that we have in the military. Right. At the end of the day, the average American, I think, has a very strong respect for the military as an institution. For the most part, when we talk of the military, we talk about them as a good thing. That's not to say that we agree with all the policies that the military makes, right? But this is not, for instance, a case where we mention military officers and then we roll our eyes and then we say, "Oh, well, you know, that's not a career path that we want our kids going into," right? Like going into the military is viewed in this country as, at the end of the day, a good thing. It's nothing to be ashamed about. That's not to say that hero worship is kind of the solution to Donald Trump, but if we sort of lose that that norm of thinking of the military in positive terms, of thinking of the officers as a sort of 
cabal of equally partisan decision makers, then that's the time to truly be worried. Another thing that I thought was interesting in the Nichols piece, even though he is focused on the president's role in escalating the civil military assault, as he calls it, he also admits that retired military officers have not helped matters, and many of them have spoken out against Trump. Many of them have spoken out against Trump in ways that would have been unthinkable even a decade ago. Um, There was a statement that Admiral Mullen made on our podcast in episode three, where he was talking about his belief that retired generals and admirals should not be doing this at all. Um, And that their their comments are actually what is politicizing the military um, more than say the president's reaction to them. What 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 do you think about that, Kevin? I'm not sure if the silence of retired military officers or just anyone who served in the military is necessarily the solution here. If we want to have more transparency, if we want to have kind of more, if we want the American public to better inform themselves on civil military relations in this country, you can't inform yourself with nothing. And if you're a retired general or retired officer or someone who never even served in a position of authority within the military, but just who happens to have military experience, if you stay silent, then you're essentially ceding the discussion to those who will make your talking points for you. At the same time, though, I I, I completely am sympathetic to this notion that anything you say can be weaponized and used against you, even when you're not trying to make a partisan claim. So this is one of those just sort of one of those scenarios where there are really no good options that I'm aware of. I don't think it is probably a good idea from from an academic perspective and from someone who cares about sort of improving our knowledge of civil military relations if retired military personnel don't say anything. But I'm aware that position comes with many, many drawbacks. It's like a fine line because on the one hand, you have kind of what Corey Shockey gets to a lot, that if you have personnel who were in the military or who are retired, using their voices and saying their own opinions, it kind of shows that, you know, veterans and service members are not all that different from American society. And that's good for civil military relations because, you know, you see that the military isn't all that foreign to you. You know, they're just like us. On the other hand, though, right, you mentioned how you need to be careful because anything you say can be politicized, anything can be made partisan. Uh, and in that regard, that can be dangerous for civil military affairs because people are now using your words and making them political and associating that military context with it. And especially dangerous, I think it's especially dangerous when you have retired flag officers weighing in on subjects that don't necessarily have anything to do with their own military's, military careers, right? When General McChrystal is asked basically to weigh in on Donald Trump's character, that's a lot different than General McChrystal being asked to talk about his experiences as a high-level military officer or commanding troops in Afghanistan. He's essentially being put in a position where he has to use his own credibility 
that he earned through his military career to then speak on a topic that isn't necessarily within his purview. At the same time, though, we as voters make decisions on policies that we probably don't have a lot of experience with. When I vote for a candidate, I try to do my research. I try to be informed. But I'm also aware that I'm voting for someone who's going to be doing things, who's going to be passing laws and policies that I have absolutely nothing about. I don't need to have experience with all the intricacies of congressional law in order to vote for a congressman or representative. And so it's not entirely clear to me if it's fair that we sort of hold, to to hold members of the military to an even higher standard in the sense that, well, you can only talk about things that you actually have experience with because the very we're all working with some perfect information here. Because we're all learning about these topics together, Nick and I generally try not to inject our opinion into these episodes, but we'd like to make one point before we finish today. If you read Professor Nichols and Professor Owen's articles, the ones we summarized earlier, you'll find that both of them start out by noting that, quote, Americans don't often think about civil-military relations and that that's a good thing or a sign of a healthy polity. In Professor Owen's words, it means that paratroopers aren't normally seizing communication centers and tanks aren't rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue towards the Capitol. We understand what they're trying to say, and we do encourage you to read their full articles, which are linked in the show notes. However, while we are certainly fortunate to live in a country where we don't worry about military coups, we respectfully disagree with the suggestion that it is good that Americans don't think about civil-military relations. The only way we sustain healthy democratic norms is by thinking about them and talking about them, instead of taking them for granted, as we Americans are often too prone to do. So, from the thank you for your service team at the University of Chicago, thank you for taking the time to think about civil-military affairs with us. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And connect with us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. This podcast is produced by Haziano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Our creative consultant is Sarah Claudi, and our publisher is David Raban. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. Please join us for our next episode when we'll talk to retired General Stanley McChrystal himself to get his thoughts on his career, military policymaking, and the current state of civil-military relations. Hi, this is Jason Zukas, the host of Have You Heard? The UC3P News Quiz. Curious to know what our show's all about? Here, have a listen. Iceland has fielded a surprisingly successful team in recent World Cups. Iceland's coach, Heimar Hallgrimsson, has a skill set not limited to just soccer, however. Which of these things does he not do on the side? (laughs) A, work part-time as a dentist. 
B, dress up as an Icelandic troll during Christmas time. Oh boy, or C, sell car insurance to friends and family. Oh man, I feel like he definitely does the troll thing. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure. I wouldn't be shook if he was a dentist. I'm gonna go with car insurance. That's correct, he does not do that. If you enjoyed that clip, come check out all of our episodes by searching for Have You Heard? UC3P on your preferred podcast platform or join one of our upcoming live shows. Just go to facebook.com slash hyhnewsquiz for more info on our next show. See you there.